Hello and welcome to the King of Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is a very special episode for me. It's the beginning of a journey that I hope you will be as enthusiastic about as I am. About two years ago, I had the genesis of an idea that had been percolating for even longer. I wanted to tell the story of All Japan Pro Wrestling's King's Road style of the 1990s. I strongly believe that the impact of that period and style of wrestling cannot be understated, and that everything from HBK Taker, Okada Omega, and Gargano Champa, and more has been directly influenced by the matches and stories that were told during that incredible decade. Luckily, I've had the pleasure of speaking with and being inspired by some incredible folks along the journey to realizing this particular passion, and I want to share two shout-outs in particular on this episode. First up is Matt Charlton. Uh, In addition to being a lovely human, his work on his new book, J-Crowned, has inspired me to take an extra step forward in charting this history. And it's no coincidence that I've been able to utilize his wonderful work as a resource for this podcast. And the other person I want to thank is Eddie Kingston. I had the privilege of interviewing Kingston during the original StarCast and mentioned to him my idea about creating podcast content about 90s All Japan and the King's Road style. He is a devout follower of this period of wrestling himself, and he immediately responded with positivity and enthusiasm. I hope to have him on a future episode to add his thoughts to the tapestry. Um, It's something that that he and I did discuss uh, at the time um, and and since in a couple of tweets. Um, And I, I just wanted to take a moment before I jump into all this to thank both of them. Um, because honestly, they are, um, two people that have just provided inspiration and motivation to dive in. Um, I'm certainly not the first one to, to get there by any means, nor do I claim to be the most expert, uh, of people that have been covering that particular decade. I know there are a couple of blogs and some YouTube, uh, um, channels out there that are, that are kind of covering that same ground. Um, you know, beat me to the punch, so to speak. Um, but it's an idea that I've had for a very long time. And in spite of thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't do it now because there's other content out there, um, or being intimidated by the scope of the project. And it's something that recently has become very clear to me that I I want to do it. I I feel up to the challenge and now is certainly the right time. Um, I want to thank them, but I also want to thank any listeners who join me for this ride. Uh, Whether you uh, are starting this journey along with me and listening to this episode as it's been released or finding this you know, weeks, months, years, maybe even down the road and listening to it, I thank you. I thank you because uh, without any ears listening, I'm just a guy talking to a microphone. Um, And as much fun as I have doing this, uh, it's even more fun when other voices are added to the chorus. Um, Now, I want this to be intensive, but by no means do I intend it to be exhaustive. There will be things that get left out matches I'm unable to cover or simply unaware of. Like I said, I don't claim to be an expert. This journey at this particular point is honestly as much for me as it is for anyone currently listening along. Uh, And for those that know and love this period as I do, please do not hesitate to offer your insights, advice, criticisms, comments. Uh, Like I said, one voice is great, but many voices 
will um, rule the day. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about All Japan Pro Wrestling or King's Road or have only heard names uh, uttered in whispers, uh, names like uh, Suruta, uh, Tenru, Misawa, Kawada, Tawe, and Kobashi, um, buckle up, because this really is one hell of a ride. All Japan Pro Wrestling was founded in October of 1972, But honestly, a better understanding of not only the promotion and where we're going with this podcast uh, can be found by going back even further. Really, we must go back even further. Uh, A name that I'm sure people listening to this podcast are at least passingly familiar with is really the beginning of everything when it comes to All Japan and and Peroisu and uh, Japanese professional wrestling. And that name is Ricky Dozan. Uh, he is the father of professional wrestling in Japan. He was born Kim Sin Rak in Japanese Korea. Uh, Korea was under Japanese rule from 1910 to 1945. Um, after World War II, things changed. Um, and Ricky Dozen was born in 1924, right in the midst of this uh, uh, Japanese rule of Korea. Uh, upon the death of his parents, he was adopted, whether formally or not. Um, it's it's not really known or available, at least to, to me. Um, you know, one of the things about this podcast going forward, a certain caveat, is that because of the language barrier, you know, my, my Japanese skills are nil. I know a few words here and there. Uh, I can, you know, read a little bit, but but not nearly well enough to um, do the sort of exhaustive research that, that might be necessary um, to, to really provide a, a full scope um, of, of each and every one of these individuals, but certainly I'm going to do the best that I can. Um, that said, uh, it seems that he was adopted by a family in Japan and, and moved to Japan, um, the Momota family. Uh, he was trained as a sumo from a very young age. Uh, you know, he, he started training um, before he was 15 years uh, of age. He actually debuted at the age of 16 in May of 1940. Um, he disguised his Korean heritage by taking the name Mitsuhiro Momota, um, and he was eventually given the Shikona, or ring name, of Ricky Dozan. Uh, he would reach the top division uh, of sumo, coming in as a runner-up to a Yokozuna in a 1947 tournament. Um, so at that particular point, he's 23 years of age and you know competing at the upper echelon of sumo. He would achieve the third highest sumo ranking, Sekewake, before retiring in 1950. Uh, he claimed it was due to financial reasons, but uh, many feel uh, that it was more likely due to prejudice that he experienced against his Korean heritage. Ricky Dozan would make the transition to professional wrestling in 1951, uh, so shortly after his sumo career ended. Uh, but he only wrestled a few matches that, that first year or so. Um, he, he really was not you know, wrestling a lot. And, and part of that is also due to the fact that there were not a lot of matches being promoted in Japan at the time. But uh, also I think it was just perhaps due to his experience level and kind of breaking into the business. Um, it really wasn't until a stint in Hawaii uh, from uh, late mid to late 1952 through 1953 that led to him becoming a huge star. Uh, and a big, 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 big part of that is Luthez. 
again, I think anyone listening to this podcast has, a, you know, probably a, a working knowledge of Lou Thez. Um, you know, Thez was and still is by many considered to be the greatest NWA world heavyweight champion of all time. He was an incredibly huge star. Um, it, it's, I think it's difficult to comprehend just how big he was. In the 1950s, it said that he was actually, uh, had more airtime on television than anyone um, because of the nature of television in those days, you had national programming, but you also had regional programming. And because Thez was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, he was featured, of course, in that national broadcasts, uh, national wrestling programs that were available to everyone. But he was also featured on regional broadcasts because he was the champion. He was a touring champion, and he would come to the territories and defend his title. So even if he wasn't featured in matches, he was usually featured in some sort of segment. Um, because in a lot of ways, wrestling television hasn't changed all that much. Um, you know, there were interview segments. Uh, there there were all, all sorts of um, uh, matches, obviously, as well. Uh, but the programming was, was fairly similar, um, I think, to what we see today in, in structure, believe it or not, if not in content or style. So Luthez was uh, a huge, huge star, and that was not necessarily uh, restricted to the United States. He was known globally. Um, he did defend the title outside of the United States, um, and of course, one of the locations that he would tour to was Japan. Um, the Luthez Ricky Dozen matchup may be the most important in the history of Peroriso. Uh, they formed a bond and a mutual respect for one another due to the time they spent in the squared circle together. Uh, the matches that they had were so popular in Japan that at one point they pulled an 87 rating, which is just simply unheard of. Um, that 60-minute time limit draw helped to firmly establish the popularity of Ricky Dozen as a, uh, not just a superstar, not just a, a sports uh, figure, uh, an icon, but, but a hero to the Japanese people. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Ricky Dozen's earlier career is that in addition to the experience that he got in Hawaii, he was also working in the United States. And he worked on the West Coast, uh, usually as a babyface. Um, he was one of the very first, if not the first, Japanese wrestlers to be cheered uh, by American audiences in post-war uh, U.S. And the interesting thing is, very similar to kind of what you saw from Bret Hart in 1997, he would be cheered on the West Coast and booed on the East Coast. He would play a villain when he was in Madison Square Garden. Um, now, of course, one of the big differences there is, is that there was no connective tissue between that. It was just that, you know, when he was in this territory, he was cheered. When he was in this territory, he was booed. And there was no awareness necessarily of that um, compared to, say, somebody like Bret Hart. Uh, so he was able to kind of capture the imagination of people uh, all over the globe. And though, you know, most of his career uh, was spent you know, the bulk of his career later on was spent in Japan. Those early days in the United States um, really helped to, uh, I think, polish this individual into the, the heroic figure that he would become. 
the match that I spoke of earlier, their draw uh, that drew the 87 rating in Japan, uh, occurred on October the 6th, 1957. Um, it really not only cemented the reputation of Ricky Dozan, but also the status of the sport uh, of professional wrestling in the country. Um, you know, he was just such a huge star that he kind of reached mythical status in, in many circles. And one of those circles, as you may know, uh, was, of course, the uh, the underworld, the criminal underworld, uh, the Yakuza. He um, had connections and ties um, to organized crime and owned a restaurant and had uh, stakes in, in land, uh, uh, nightclubs, um, grocery stores. He was... Again, a larger-than-life figure in so many ways. Uh, in fact, his home was was called the Ricky Mansion. Um, it was a huge uh, estate in Japan, and um, he had a certain popularity uh, that was coupled with a bit of notoriety as well. Um, he had a temper. Um, he he saw himself as being this larger-than-life figure. Um, and he felt as though he was the only one, um, that could lead professional wrestling in Japan. Um, he would form the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance in 1953, um, to serve as Japan's NWA territory. He had established in, in just a few short years, he had established enough connections, um, with, the uh, wrestlers that he worked with in Hawaii and on the West Coast, um, that he was respected enough uh, amongst the NWA that uh, having his own territory in Japan to represent the NWA uh, was was made possible. Um, flash forward a few more years. In 1958, um, Luthez uh, had just recently dropped the NWA World Heavyweight Championship to Dick Hutton uh, in late 1957. Almost immediately after dropping the title, he was awarded the NWA International Heavyweight Championship. Uh, now, it was promoted that he won a tournament against Antonio Rocca. Uh, sound familiar? Any of you WWE fans who know the history of the Intercontinental Championship will, will get a kick out of that. Uh, he, um, he was awarded this belt sort of as a, as a token to say, you know, you're still important to us. Um, it was just time to make a change. Uh, now, behind closed doors, um, Thez was told uh, not to lose this belt in a match to Ricky Dozan. Uh, and even in public after the match, he would claim that he never lost the title and even defended in some matches afterwards. However, the reality, um, as attested to by Luthez himself, was that he respected Ricky Dozan a great deal, and he felt like losing the title to Ricky Dozan was the right thing to do. Um, his decision to put Ricky Dozan over would have a negative impact, uh, believe it or not, on the opinion um, of some promoters uh, that they held for Luthez. It would still be uh, another five years before he had a run with the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, he did have another run. It was a very lengthy run um, that lasted, uh, I believe, from 1963 uh, up until 1966, um, where he lost the title to Gene Kaniski. Um, that said, it was something that Thez wanted to do, and the, the impact um, that it had for the JWA and for Ricky Dozan 
again, it's one of those things that can't be understated. Um, it gave that promotion a title. It gave that promotion a title that had ties to arguably the greatest and most well-known professional wrestler uh, in the world at that particular point in time, as well as the organization that promoted him and promoted those titles. Um, Ricky Dozen would end up holding that title for the next five years. Uh, he was challenged by a number of... Um, foreign competitors that would come through. You know, he was always seen as the Japanese hero defeating the evil American that had come in uh, to take his title away from him. Uh, He would face some uh, local talent as well. But if there was one fault that Ricky Dozen had at that particular point in time, uh, it was potentially that he uh, did not necessarily promote a lot of the local talent. Now, he saw that there would come a time when he would step back. He knew that there would come a time when he would no longer be the figurehead for the company. But while he was the figurehead for the company, there was not any room for anyone else at the top. Um, you know, he he ruled the promotion, um, much like you have seen from other promoters in the United States when they were in charge of their territory and would book themselves on top. Uh, or, you know, their their friend or their favorite wrestler on top if they did not necessarily participate in the ring. Unfortunately, um, the title w- was never actually taken off of Ricky Dozen in the ring. Um, it was his untimely death uh, that ended up leading to the uh, title being vacated. Um, however, it's where our story adds another layer and an important piece of the puzzle that leads us to uh, the 1990s. As I was saying, Ricky Dozan saw and planned for the future of professional wrestling in Japan. He knew that homegrown talent would be necessary for the future of the business. And arguably, one of the most important decisions that he ever made was the selection of two pieces of talent in 1960. One was a Brazilian expat named Antonio Inoki, and the other was Shohai Giant Baba. It could be argued that there is no more important piece to the puzzle and the story that I am telling than Shohai Baba. Shohai Giant Baba joined the JWA in 1960. He had been a star baseball pitcher and athlete. He had actually won awards for being the best pitcher in the league. However, uh, injuries and uh, a number of other factors prevented him from repeating that um, particular feat, and he quickly slid down the card, so to speak, um, uh, in the rotation uh, in baseball, uh, even being traded to another team. It was at this point that Ricky Dozen discovered him um, and knew that with his imposing size and innate charisma, he could be a top star for the JWA. Um, Baba would lead a storied career of his own throughout the 1960s, working not only in Japan, but throughout the U.S. territories. Uh, He would headline matches with NWA champions, picked up a number of his own title reigns. Um, Now, during the time that Ricky Dozen was on top of the card in the JWA, um, Baba was actually not in Japan. Um, he was, he was wrestling a a lot in the United States and in the territories, um, as was Inoki. Uh, now upon Ricky Dozen's death, um, he returned, 
Uh, Ricky Dozan, unfortunately, um, due to a number of factors uh, that I was mentioning earlier, found himself in one of his uh, nightclubs, got into a fight with a member of the Yakuza in the bathroom. Um, Ricky Dozan ended up really pummeling the guy, um, and as he was beating him up, the guy pulled out a knife and stabbed Ricky Dozan. Uh, now, there is a lot of myths out there as to whether or not the blade had been soaked in urine uh, or what, you know, what the case was. It, it, the accepted story now that renders stories like that apocryphal is that in actuality, Ricky Dozan went to the hospital. He was treated, surgery, sewn up. He was told he would be fine, um, but he was placed on certain dietary restrictions, including no alcohol. He immediately went home, ordered sushi and sake, uh, ended up eating and drinking uh, to excess, uh, found himself having stomach pains, had to have a second surgery, went in for the second surgery, contracted the infection, um, peritonitis, and that was the cause of his death. Uh, the Yakuza member who stabbed him was uh, charged with and found guilty of manslaughter and served eight years in prison. Um, upon getting out of prison, um, he uh, publicly apologized to the family and to the community, um, and he would visit Ricky Dozan's grave uh, every year on the date of his death uh, and place flowers all the way up until his death, um, uh, I believe about 10 years ago. Um, it's an interesting story. However, it's not necessarily the piece of the story that uh, is most important here, so I'll move on from that. Uh, however, when Baba returned to Japan, he would team with Inoki as B.I. Cannon, and they helped lead the promotion, um, honestly, in a, in, a, in a war with uh, international wrestling enterprises. There was also a Tokyo Pro Wrestling promotion um, that Inoki had actually jumped ship for, for a time being. Um, Inoki was was seen as a bit of an iconoclast at the time. You know, he didn't play by the rules from the very beginning. Um, whereas Baba, uh, Baba did, you know, he respected the decisions that Ricky Dozen made. He felt like he was learning a lot when he was on excursion in the States. Um, he felt like he was being placed towards the, the top of the card, um, and, and, and getting opportunities. Um, and not that Inoki wasn't, but it, it was a very different experience, I think, for Baba compared to Inoki. Um, Inoki wanted more, 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 more. Um, uh, not that Baba didn't want more, but he was in no hurry necessarily to get it. Um, now, as the JWA continued to struggle on into the early 70s, Antonio Inoki actually attempted a hostile takeover of the company. Uh, he was, however, fired. Um, however, Baba was seeing the same uh, issues with the company that Inoki was. He, however, decided not to attempt the hostile takeover. Instead, he did something that we see even to this day with certain professional wrestlers. He let his contract expire. And when his contract expired, he took his knowledge, he took his money, and he took some of the wrestlers along with him, and he formed All Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, at this time, Inoki had also formed a, uh, an organization, New Japan Pro Wrestling. So 1972 is the year of the birth of the two uh, greatest companies in the history of professional wrestling. Not just Japan, but professional wrestling, period. Um... The two companies would, of course, compete with one another, but they weren't so hostile that they didn't trade talent on occasion, um, that they didn't run uh, certain matches. But 
relationship between the two did become a bit frosty, um, you know, and, and the competition was certainly ratcheted up in through the late 70s uh, and, and, and on through the 80s and 90s. Uh, and, and exists, you know, in, in some fashion, even today, uh, although much, much, much less so. Um, you know, these days the companies don't have as big of a problem cross-promoting with one another. Uh, these days it's clear that New Japan Pro Wrestling won the war. Um, it's it's clear that All Japan Pro Wrestling is, is you know, the number two, maybe even number three company. Um, they've kind of vacillated between that number two and number three spot in Japan since uh, 2000, which is obviously where we're going to go towards the end of this story. Um Baba had strong connections to U.S. stars like the Funks and the Destroyer. Uh, the Destroyer is another name whose importance um, to Japanese professional wrestling um, is pretty major. Uh, he actually wrestled a match with Ricky Dozen that drew a 62 uh, audience share. The The interesting thing about that is, is because more people had television sets by the time that match happened, it's speculated that more people actually saw that match than did the Thez uh, Ricky Dozen match from 1957. Um, the Funks, of course, you know, they uh, were also a huge component uh, of Japanese professional wrestling. Dory Funk Jr., when he was the champion, uh, wrestled numerous matches um, in Japan and uh, would, you know, put over talent, um, you know, and he and his brother were uh, already, uh, even in 1972, approaching legendary status uh, among the Japanese audience. Now, not only did he have uh, connections with these U.S. stars, but even somebody from the U.K. like Billy Robinson um, would prove invaluable to the organization when they were first starting out. Um, And all four of those names would wrestle frequently uh, near the top of the card or usually on top of the card in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, the uh, ties that All Japan had to the NWA provided instant legitimacy for the company. Um... That's not to say that New Japan wasn't seen as legitimate, but the fact that All Japan had the NWA World Heavyweight Champion coming in uh, was a big deal uh, even then. Baba would uh, go on to hold the company's top title, naturally, um, the Pacific Wrestling Federation World Heavyweight Championship for 1,920 days and 38 defenses. Uh, Now that belt will go on to play a very important role in our story. Now, much like Ricky Dozan, Baba was always planning for the future, and one of the most impactful decisions of Baba's early career as a promoter was to hire, train, and push a 22-year-old amateur wrestling talent by the name of Tomomi Jumbo Suruta. Saruta was seen as a phenom and an early fan favorite. And six months in, he was headlining tag matches with Baba against the Funks. Um, he was sent on excursion, uh, much like Baba and Inoki had been. And, and Dory helped to train Jumbo um, and, and get him experience in the West Texas Territory, Detroit, Florida, St. Louis, some of the biggest territories in the United States at the time. Uh, not only was this training and exposure valuable for him, but the matches that he was having were catching people's eyes. And he was garnering cheers from Western audiences in ways that a lot of Japanese wrestlers, even in the 70s, did not get. Um, his matches uh, and early single bouts that he had with Dory Funk Jr., even just a year or two into his career, uh, established him as a star. You know, here's a guy who was you know, just a couple years into his career and already challenging for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. 
Um, just within three years, he was firmly established as one of the company's top stars, second only to the giant Baba. Now, as the 70s gave way to the 80s and Baba began to cut back on his schedule and main event programs, Jumbo Ceruto was firmly established. Um, he, he led the company in so many ways. However, he did face some competition in that arena. Um, another incredible star of All Japan Pro Wrestling, Genichiro Tenru. Tenru's path to stardom was very different from Suruta's. Whereas Suruta had an almost instant push to the top of the card, Tenru spent his first six years towards the bottom uh, and and on excursion. Um, Towards the end of 1981, he really started to pick up steam. Um, He had a couple of title shots, um, but it really wasn't until 1982's Champions Carnival uh, when he started to see more parity with his counterpart uh, that that he was established as a top star as well. He finished with 26 points in the tournament, uh, and that included a draw to Jumbo uh, and a draw to none other than Ted DiBiase. Um, He lost matches only to three people, the Giant Baba, Bruiser Brody, and Billy Robinson. All three of those men were uh, the top three uh, in the Champions Carnival that year. Uh, Baba won, Brody came in second, um, and then I believe Robinson might have had 28 points, uh, and Jumbo and Tenru tied. Now, after that, uh, Tenru began collecting belts and wins of his own, and he had a successful tag team run with, of course, Jumbo Suruta. Um, they played, you know, the, the babyface leaders of the company, taking on all comers. Um, they even defended All Japan Pro Wrestling in an invasion angle uh, against former New Japan Pro Wrestling talents Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Uh, the angle involved Choshu and Yatsu coming over from New Japan. Um, they were no longer contracted to the company. They were all Japan wrestlers. Uh, however, they formed their own stable and insinuated that they were still with New Japan and coming to take over the company. Sound familiar? Um, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. So during that time, they were the, the homegrown heroes for all Japan pro wrestling. Um, they, they were the, you know, the top of the company. And, uh, I think that their impact, um, together, um, was very important, but it was nothing compared to the impact they would have when they broke up. Um, Tenru formed a stable called Revolution, um, and uh, members of that stable included none other than Stan Hansen um, and two rookie performers by the names of Toshiaki Kawada and Yoshinari Ogawa. Remember those names. Now, the pieces were set at this point. Tenru and Suruta began feuding in earnest, and it was a feud that would last um, a number of years. Now, there's another important element to this story that I want to segue into. I mentioned earlier the Pacific Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Um, two other belts that were defended with regularity, uh, singles belts that were defended with regularity in All Japan Pro Wrestling included the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, which was the belt that Ricky Dozan won from Luthez. So that belt had a lot of history in Japan. And the NWA Unified National Heavyweight Championship. Now, the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, again, was created for Luthez after he lost the world title to Dick Hutton. He took that belt to Japan and dropped it to Ricky Dozan early on in his reign, and it became the top title for the JWA. After Ricky Dozan's death, Baba was the frequent and longest reigning champion. 
after JWA's closing, the belt was defended by its last holder in the JWA, Kentaro Oki, but that was not officially recognized by the NWA. Um, now, he held the belt for a, a, a while, but he also would wrestle in All Japan. When he wrestled in All Japan, he did not defend the title. Um, it was just kind of something he had with him. Now, eventually, the NWA ordered him to vacate the title, and Dory Funk Jr. would become the champion um, after that. Uh, Funk, uh, Bruiser Brody, Jumbo Saruta, and Stan Hansen would trade the belt back and forth for most of the 80s before Saruta defeated Bruiser Brody in April of 1988 um, to grab hold of that title. He would hold it for a whole year, going into April of 1989. The NWA Unified National Heavyweight Championship was established in 1970 as a title for uh, the NWA Los Angeles Territory and promotion. However, it made its way across the Pacific to become one of the main titles in All Japan Pro Wrestling when Jumbo Saruta defeated Jack Briscoe in a tournament final in 1976. Now, the reason why that's important is because Jack Briscoe had only recently lost the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. He found himself in a position to put over, again, one of the top talents in Japan, much like Luthez had, and he did it. And this was a huge win for Jumbo Saruta. Uh, it, it, it really took him from being that homegrown star who was reaching for the top to being looked at as one of the top stars in the country, if not the world, after beating a name like the legendary Jack Briscoe. Now, Saruta would trade the title with numerous competitors, but it kept finding its way back to his waist. Um, it, really, it really was kind of his belt up until a certain point. Now, eventually he would vacate the title in order to focus on the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, um, and two men would feud over the belt, Stan Hansen and Tenru. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that they were uh, part of that revolution stable I mentioned earlier. Now, eventually, Hansen got the Duke and would become the champ um, going into April of 1989. The PWF World Heavyweight Championship that I mentioned earlier, uh, the Pacific Wrestling Federation, uh, was created in 1973 as the top title for All Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, you know, much like New Japan Pro Wrestling, they didn't see the need to call about the you know New Japan Pro Wrestling World Heavyweight Championship, etc. Uh, by creating sort of this fictional wrestling federation, um, it, it, it gave the belt more prestige. It was something that came from somewhere else, and they took it. It represented more than this company, um, and it was it was really smart um, a smart choice for Baba to do that. Much in the same way that Inoki would end up creating the IWGP uh, down the road. Uh, now, Baba was the first holder of the title after winning a series of 10 matches against what were, at that time, considered the best wrestlers in the world, at least for storyline purposes. Um, opponents like Bruno San Martino, Terry Funk, um, Abdullah the Butcher, The Destroyer, Pat O'Connor, and Bobo Brazil, who was the final man that Baba beat in order to take the title, um, Really, really established, uh, I mean, an already established star like Baba, but established the company as well, and its top title um, in very short order. Uh, now, Baba would go on to hold that title a total of four times for a combined reign of over 10 years. Um, now, Stan Hansen would match the number of reigns as the only other multi-time holder of the title, but not nearly the length of time uh, that Baba held the title. Tenru did have a reign in 1988 before being dethroned by Stan Hansen. And Hansen would be the man holding that belt going into April of 1989. 
So here we have the three belts. And the interesting thing about these three belts is that we know that the PWF World Heavyweight Championship and the NWA Unified National Championship had both been held by Genichiro Tenru, um, but currently were held by Stan Hansen. The NWA International Heavyweight Championship was held by Jumbo Saruta. And here's where we get to one of the most important pieces of our story, the Triple Crown. The titles had actually been, um, there had been attempts to unify the titles prior to this uh, match, uh, but the matches would always end with an inconclusive finish. April 18th, 1989, Jumbo Saruta versus Stan Hansen would change everything. Now, the copy of the match that I have, um, unfortunately, uh, does not have any of the, the pre-match introductions uh, or ring entrances, so I'm not entirely sure how the belt presentations were handled. It pretty much just starts off with, you know, let's get this thing started. Um, but one can imagine that uh, just the way that the presentation of the company usually handled these sorts of things, that there was much ado. Uh, now, the... Early going of the match involved uh, some pretty great chop exchanges uh, that was followed by some great mat work from Jumbo. Uh, He would target Hanson's left arm early on, which obviously was seen as incredibly smart by the crowd because his left arm was his lariat arm. Um, But in addition to doing that, he does this wonderful thing when they're down on the mat where he uh, uses his legs to um, scissor Hanson's head and create some separation. So, you know, a lot of times in wrestling, one of the things that kind of defies logic is that you'll see somebody grab an arm bar or an arm lock or something like that and try and work that hold. And you wonder why the wrestler in the hold isn't trying to get out of it. He's got a free arm. He's at a vertical base. It's fine. It's what we've accepted as being professional wrestling. But this, it's it's wonderful psychology and storytelling because it works logically. All of a sudden, Hanson literally can't get out of this move because he has his other arm, you know, has been basically separated. He's down on the mat. His his, his head is in this leg scissors. And at the same time, Jumbo's working over his arm, which is his greatest asset and seen as, you know, as his, his finish. Uh, now, Unfortunately for Saruta, Hansen is able to use his brute force to take over. Um, but, you know, Jumbo is super smart. No slouch in the brute force department either. And uh, we get into some great exchanges uh, of mat work uh, and some strikes here and there. And both guys are looking to wear each other down and set up the big bombs that would come down the road. Hansen's working the headlocks. Jumbo keeps working the leg scissors. Uh, about five minutes in, we get this beautiful cravat from Jumbo. I, I mean, if you think guys like Chris Hero and William Regal have a good cravat, this thing is awesome. Uh, now, Hanson eventually uses his brawling to take over, and they'll take it outside. Uh, there's some great brawling. One of the things that uh, really you'll see the more we get into that King's Road style is that there is a heavy influence of what other wrestling journalists and historians have noted, the sort of the Southern style, uh, United States Southern style of wrestling, the brawling, the out of the ring brawling, you know, you look at like the Memphis territory, um, you're going to see more punches and kicks and whips into the guardrail and, and ring post and outside of the ring brawling than you are headlocks and classic mat wrestling. Um, you know, if you want that, you're probably going to have to go to, to AWA or, 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 you know, something like that. So this, this influence carries over into the, 90s. 
uh, for certain and, and plays a big part in the, the King's Road style. And this is a great display of that. Um, now, there, it's a fairly even bout at this point, but there's this great sense of desperation you get from Hansen. Um, and it plays really well into the Gaijin versus native talent roles. Um, the audience is firmly behind um, Saruta at points. However, Hansen is a huge star, and, they're, and they pop big for some of the things that Hansen does because, you know, even though I think they want to see Saruta win at this point, um, you know, Hansen is is still at you know considered kind of this legendary figure in Japanese wrestling. Um, the interesting thing is is that even though Jumbo is, is showing some fire on occasion, getting fired up, he still has this methodical approach. He's operating on top for most of the match, and yet Hansen still poses this big threat. Um, Around the nine-minute mark, Jumbo will hit one of his signature moves, a beautiful jumping knee. Uh, he'll begin brawling with Hansen in earnest, sort of a, you know, I'll play your game. Uh, but Hansen is able to battle back. Uh, we start to really see that parity um, between the two competitors, and it increases the drama so well. Uh, this is a very different match from a match that we're going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, the edge is still slightly in Jumbo's corner. He seems to have an answer for Hansen's attacks, devastating as they may be. Um, you know, there's lots of clubbering here. Uh, Jumbo continues to work over Hansen's left arm. Very smart. Um, you know, Hansen starts working from underneath, but he's still bringing it. Uh, Jumbo continues to get fired up more and more, starts to lose his cool. At one point, he applies this great abdominal stretch, and as Hansen pushes it into the ropes, uh, the ref, of course, calls for the break, but Jumbo... Uh, holds on to it and then starts attacking the exposed side while the ref tries to separate him. It's this great little piece of psychology um, that that I think you know you, you understand that Jumbo's this guy who you know he'll fight you. He's not he's not you know he's not just going to wrestle you, but he'll fight you even if that means bending and breaking the rules. Uh, now Hanson leaves the ring. Uh, he actually goes all the way out into the crowd, you know, through the gate. Um, Jumbo, of course, goes to get him, bring him back in. He's not having it. You know, he wants the finish as much as the crowd wants the finish. He wants these titles unified. Um, <clears throat> around the 14 to 15 minute mark, Hanson hits this big backdrop suplex that folds Jumbo up for a near fall, and then he takes over in earnest. Uh, Hanson does this great thing where he exposes his knee, drops the knee pad down, and hits a knee drop that sees Jumbo roll out of the ring. Uh, he's surrounded by his seconds face down. I think we all know what's happening here. Uh, sure enough, he comes up with some color. Uh, Hanson attacks the cut with elbows, smashes a chair across Jumbo's back. Worth noting at this point that the referee is is really great in this match. Adds a wonderful uh, piece to the to the overall storytelling, a wonderful layer. Um, but he does let some things go, and I think part of that is you know playing into that that ongoing storyline and psychology of the fact that you have these two guys looking to unify these three titles. There have been matches to do this before, but they've always ended inconclusively. I'm not going to let that happen this time around. I'm going to let it keep going. You know, he's trying to get the match back in the ring. Eventually it does. Um, you know, the blood uh, adds some really nice drama, of course. Uh, it also firmly establishes this momentum shift. Now all of a sudden Jumbo is the one fighting from underneath. Um, and, 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 we get near fall after near fall from Hanson, but Jumbo just will not stay down. Um, Hanson signals for the lariat. The crowd responds big time to that, but Jumbo moves and Hanson hits the ropes, bounces back down onto the mat and Jumbo covers him and gets the one, two, three out of nowhere. Um, you know, the crowd pops, uh, Hanson's pissed. He starts attacking, you know, the, the seconds uh, at ringside. Um, and, 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 you know, 
it, it it's interesting that the finish kind of comes almost unceremoniously in a way. Um, but but also I think plays in so well to the story that they were telling. Um, it was good old school brawling, nice mat work, great psychology, little blood to boot. It's nothing earth shattering, but it's an extremely important match. And, you know, it's like 17, 18 minutes. I think it's well worth uh, a watch for sure. Uh, now, at this point, Jumbo Saruta is the very first Triple Crown champion. Of course, Jumbo wouldn't get much time to rest because just a couple of days later, on April the 20th, 1989, he makes his first defense of the All Japan Pro Wrestling Triple Crown, the newly minted Triple Crown. Now, one of the things that is interesting to note, and most of you may know, is that the Triple Crown at this particular time was not a single belt. It was actually represented by each individual title. Uh, the winner of the Triple Crown carried all three, or holder rather, the Triple Crown carried all three titles to the ring together. Um, they would in the 90s also start having a trophy uh, that would be presented to the winner of the Triple Crown um, that was, I think, associated with the television uh, channel Nippon TV. Um, so at this particular point in time, Tenru enters and, uh, you know, has the belts. Um, this is the first defense of the Triple Crown, and it is between these two rivals. Um, both guys look like they're in such great shape. Um, Tenru obviously is giving up some size. He goes at about, you know, 6'2", um, whereas Jumbo is about 6'6". Six, six. Um, but he's also no lightweight. You know, weight-wise, he's maybe even up about 10 pounds, maybe 15 pounds. Um, this is a slimmer Tenru than, than what some people may be used to seeing. Anyone who's kind of familiar with him uh, from his, you know, 2000 run uh, when he when he came back to All Japan, uh, which is something we'll get into. Um, you know, this is, this is a different kind of slimmer, younger-looking Tenru. Now, it is also worth noting, some historians have incorrectly identified in this match uh, that Tenru is the younger babyface competitor. Um, he's not younger. He's actually a year older than Jumbo Saruta. And for this particular match... Um, it's not, I wouldn't say he's not the baby face, but Saruta is definitely not the heel either. The crowd is split fairly evenly for this defense, uh, between the two men. Um, now early on, Tenru brings it. He scores big with an enziguri and a big lariat, gets a near fall. Uh, Jumbo's hurting, you know, uh, but, but fires up pretty quickly. Um, the selling that, that these two give one another is, is, really great actually and and will become a key component to the king's road style going forward um you know this match lays some groundwork much like the hansen and and jumbo match did uh, some groundwork for the style but we haven't quite gotten to the blueprint yet now early on in the match there's moments when it seems like jumbo isn't really taking tenru seriously enough and then tenru will kind of fire off uh, a few strikes to say hey take me seriously you son of a bitch um, it's, it's pretty great. Um, Saruta gets some chants and, and cheers early on that almost make it seem like he's got the edge in, in popularity. Um, but, but you can sense as the match goes on that that's not really the case. Um, there's this elbow, um, in the corner, um, that Tenru sells so well. Um, and, and, and 
and then we get this stare down. And unfortunately, the, you know, the camera work does a good job of capturing part of it, but it doesn't really get quite get all of it. But the stare down is phenomenal. There's so much hate. There's just so much intensity. And Tenru slaps Jumbo in the face and the crowd lights up. It is such great, simple psychology and storytelling in that moment. These two guys do not like each other. They do not respect one another. And they're going to beat the shit out of one another until somebody has the triple crown. Um, there's, you know, some mat work from Tenru. Uh, Jumbo gets into the ropes, and when he does so, uh, Tenru gets up and kicks Saruta right in the spine. Um, I, I mean, again, that hate, you know, the meanness, the aggression. Uh, it, it's these little exchanges that really tell a lot. Um, in addition to that, there's these great little exchanges that occur um, during each individual struggle. Um, you'll you'll see, you know, a headlock get applied and... Um, Neither one wants to give an inch, you know, but there has to be a, a winner. Uh, and so you, you'll see like some strikes back and forth. And, and it's like every time they have to up the ante, um, it's, it's like, OK, that won't work. Well, then I'll do this. Oh, that didn't work. So I'll do this. And that is a hallmark of the King's Road style and something that we will see uh, again in, in, in another match, which which will fittingly call the blueprint. Um it's, it's really this type of small storytelling that gives every move and every exchange more meaning and, and helps to build to the, the end of the story, or at least the climax of this particular part of the story. And again, that's a hallmark of the King's Road style. Now, some criticize this match uh, for the middle. There's there's a bit of a dip because there's like this sleeper headlock uh, section uh, where Saruta has Tenru down on the mat. Um, and it certainly isn't as electrifying as the rest of the match, but I like it. I think Tenru's facials are great. I think he's he's subtly working to get out without expending too much energy um, because, of course, he's having to carry you know Saruta's weight at this point. And it works. Again, psychologically, it just works. Um Plus, the the crowd really starts to get behind him when he's working to break out, and I and I think that that is also something that plays into the next match a great deal. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the parity between these two competitors, and it really is matched by the crowd as well. You can tell that the crowd uh, is is pretty well split down the middle uh, in supporting Jumbo or supporting supporting Tenru. Um, it's great texture. You know, the crowd adds so much to these matches and this is no exception. Now the exchange on the mat, again, it probably does go on a little too long, but in my opinion, it doesn't really hurt things. Um, Jumbo does some great selling too, kind of after the fact, like he, you know, he got his back worked over earlier. He got kicked in the kidneys, etc. but he, he goes back to kind of selling it and showing you that he's uncomfortable, um, you know, moving a little gingery and gingerly holding his back. He wants to try to slow the match down, avoid any more big strikes from Tenru, but you know what? That's not going to happen. And Tenru is selling the damage, uh, that he's taken like a million bucks, but he fires off a chop after he gets up that goes off like a shotgun blast. It is it's one hell of a chop. Um, then he hits a huge tope, uh, elbow suicida outside the ring. I, it's an awesome spot. I, I mean, to see it, it, it's pretty great. And the crowd pops big. Um, and you got to remember, this is 1989. We're talking about when you know moves like that were not uh, seen all the time. Um, you know, Tenru uh, goes rolls back into the ring as Jumbo struggles to get back in, um, and then he hits a lariat while Jumbo's on the apron. Um, 
again, this is great psychology, trying to keep Jumbo out of the ring, trying to regain a little bit of your breath, get a little bit of your momentum back. Um, Jumbo actually gets hung up in the ropes by his knee, and there's this great camera cut that does a close-up of that. And it's it's just this really kind of cool moment, you know, kind of signal to the to the audience watching on TV. It's like, oh man, like you know, there could be some there could be some consequences from this other than just like getting a second in the ring. Um, Tenru, you know, like I said, he takes that breather, and every time Jumbo tries to come back in, he keeps assaulting him on the apron. Um, finally, Jumbo does get back in, and he's pissed. He hits this big boot, and Tenru tries to no sell the big boot. And then he gets hit with two more that are brutal. I mean, you can just feel like uh, Tenru was probably eating soft foods the next day. Um, there's a nice near fall um, uh, with this uh, slam off the top, and Jumbo tries to go for an elbow, and you know, so Tenru kind of comes back, slams him down, gets a two count. Again, Jumbo battles back. There's a big knee that gets him right back in the match, and then Jumbo goes for a power bomb, and basically. Tinru lands right on the back of his head and neck. Um, you know, from the looks of it, it legit knocks him out. This is a fairly famous spot. Um, you, you can tell um, that's not the way things were supposed to go. Jumbo gets the three count and retains the triple crown. Um, the great thing is, is the look on Jumbo's face, it does not betray the fact that he's overly concerned for you know, Tinru or, or, or what just went wrong. There's still kind of this disdain, um, that he has and, and it works really well. And he does keep looking at him and checking him. And I think you can tell, you know, if you, if you sort of don't suspend your disbelief, it's like, oh yeah, he's worried about his, you know, his, his fellow competitor and, and that's great. But the way that it plays off on his face, it looks more just sort of like, you know, you, you piece of shit, you, you can't even get up. you like, you know, give me a break. Um, you know, it, it's a good match. It really is. It could have been great. Um, however, we don't have to wait too long for it to get great. That takes us to June 5th, 1989. This segment can only be called The Blueprint. This title defense uh, between Saruta and Tenru is less than two months after their last match, which, of course, ended with a spot that, you know, may or may not uh, have supposed to happen the way that it did. So we get a rematch between the two, um, and I fucking love this match. I'm just getting it out there right off the bat. Um, we do get some more of the pre-match in the recording uh, of this match that I have, which is nice. You see Jumbo enter. Um, he, he's wearing the NWA International Heavyweight Belt, while a second uh, carries out the NWA United National and the PWF World Heavyweight titles. Um, you know, so it's kind of cool presentation. We see the three titles. Um, the only thing that I can say is that his choice to wear the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, uh, you know, it could be seen as like this is this to me is the most important component of these three titles. Um, who knows? I don't I don't have a, a great answer for that. Uh, we see Stan Hansen sitting in the corner uh, on the outside watching the match. Um, you know, it, it's cool because he's there to support his teammate um, Genichiro Tenru. Um, it's really interesting to note that this time around, Tenru is definitely more the fan favorite. Uh, you can tell by the crowd reaction to him and by the crowd reaction to uh, Saruta. Now, this is such a different match. The hate is still there. They're aggressive as fuck. Uh, and, and even though 
uh, Jumbo will work a headlock, it never lasts long or outstays his welcome. They wrestle a pace that is very different from the last match and very different from the Hanson-Saruta match um, to form the Triple Crown. Uh, This pacing is an integral part to the King's Road style. You don't see a lot of long rest holds. You see holds for certain, but this is more about what can I do to beat my opponent um, and beat him in a quick and glorious fashion. Now, of course, the other hallmark to the King's Road style is it's never a quick and glorious fashion. Matches generally uh, are going to run you know, closer to half an hour, sometimes maybe even more. And this match is no exception. Um, there's lots of big strikes. Um, the impact, again, is another hallmark of the King's Road style. The fact that, you know, you really feel these blows. Uh, and you see the competitors reeling from some of these elbows and chops and, and exchanges. Um, Jumbo is is clearly working the heel. Uh, he gets booed a lot by the crowd. Um, the crowd, by the way, is off the charts for this match. They are super hot and super into everything that's going on. Um, you know, Jumbo is like kicking Saruta, or excuse me, Jumbo is kicking Tinru in the head when he's down on, on the mat, and the crowd is all over him for it. Um, you know. He continues to work on top, but the fans want Tinru so badly to come back. And that's the story. That's your psychology right there. That's what helps to make this match so great. Because by giving the fans the opposite of what they want so often and so much in this match, by cutting Tinru off every time he gets something started, they get more and more hope from every big shot that Tinru levels at Jumbo. And it plays huge into the finish. Um, it's just your, it's just your perfect underdog story. You know, they want Tenru to win and it doesn't look like he's going to. Saruta's the guy who's just beating the crap out of him. Um, you know, we mentioned the elbow suicida in the last match. In this match, Tenru floats over the top rope at one point, like he's Nick Jackson. No joke. You've got to see this and hits this beautiful splash off the apron. Um, the crowd is so hot. I mean, they're so into this. Everything um, that 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 happens in this match, you know, they're hanging on every single move, every exchange, and I think the pacing helps to play into that. There's no downtime. There's no moment for them to rest. Every single you know minute is filled with action for them to be engaged with. Um, you do have some fans that are still into Saruta, but it's mostly a pro Tenru crowd. Um, Tenru does some really nice leg work uh, on the left leg about ten minutes in. He he's got this leg lock, and then he's punching at the knee. Um, he then hits like these brutal forearm shots while they're down on the ground, gets up, goes into the corner, runs out, and then drops his forearm across Tenru's face, or Saruta's face. It's really, really nice. But Jumbo comes right back, and he's laying into Tenru. He's beating him down. He's hitting big strikes, locking in holds, you know, transition from one hold to the next. Here's a strike. Here's a hold, strike, hold. Here's a move. Um, and, and, and again, it's just that, that constant pummeling, the constant aggression that really whips the crowd up into a frenzy. Um, and the more that Jumbo does that, the more the crowd gets behind Tenry, the more they want to see him pull out this win. Um, there's a big knee in the corner and then, uh, Saruta gets Tenru up for a, a backdrop suplex. But there's this really cool moment where Tenru, he puts his feet on the ropes and the top turnbuckle and he pushes off. 
And even though the impact of the move still lands on Tenru, Saruta now is off balance. He hits the back of his head. He sells it so well. It takes both of them down. Um, and, 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 it, and again, it gives Tenru kind of a bit of a breather, and it brings the audience, you know, just rushing back to his side. Now, in spite of that, Jumbo rallies with a huge lariat and goes for the cover, um, but uh, Tenru's in the ropes. Um, you know, Jumbo goes up not once, not twice, but three times and hits big knee drops. But again, Tenru is, is close to the ropes. Um, and Tenru's selling of all these knee drops is so great. Like, he's, like, holding the side of his face, and you you think his skull's, like, caved in or something. It's fantastic. Um there's a Thez press uh, by Saruta, which gets a two count, and the crowd pops huge. You know, we mentioned Thez, obviously, earlier in this episode and his importance to the fabric of Japanese professional wrestling. Seeing this move, it again, it plays into a story that began 40 years ago prior to this match. It was also a move that, you know, Saruta used very often. It was it was in his move set. Um, and, and the fact that Tenru kicks out is a big deal as well. Um, it's that kind of texturing and layering in of these little details and these little stories bits that, that again, um, really play into the King's Road style. Um, after the two count, um, it looks like Saruta's going to go for the Thez press again, and Tenru instead kind of grabs him and drops backwards, hits a kind of stun gun to reverse the press. But Jumbo gets back up, and he hits this big drop kick. And I'll tell you what, man, Jumbo's drop kicks are awesome, and not just for a guy who's six foot six. Um, at this point, you know, it's, it's clear that the toll is being taken on both men and Jumbo's starting to falter just a little bit. He misses a knee, crashes into the corner. Tinru hits an enziguri, gets a hot near fall. The crowd can really sense that we're in the finishing stretch and they go crazy for every little thing. Um, eventually Tinru hits a power bomb and they go nuts. And, 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 and when Saruta kicks out, I mean, you've got women and girls screaming, you've got, you know, people up on their feet. It's incredible. Tinru picks him up, hits another power bomb that just looks so impactful, uh, and gets the one, two and three. He's the new triple crown champion. Hanson rushes in the ring uh, to celebrate with him. Um, it's such a great, it's such a great match. Uh, there's this wonderful post-match bit where Jumbo comes over to shake Tenru's hand. Tenru won't shake his hand. Uh, you know, Saruta kind of waves him off like, "Okay, fine, fuck you," and leaves the ring. Um, it's 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 so great. Um, and this again is the blueprint. It it sets the table for the entirety of the match style that we will see in the 1990s from All Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, it, it can't be undervalued. It can't be understated. It, it's one of my favorite matches. Uh, I really, really enjoy it. Um, I enjoy watching all three of these matches together and seeing the way that it leads up to this moment, but there's no denying that the June 5th, 1989 match solidifies the King's Road style and is the blueprint for everything that is to come. Now we will get two more singles matches from Tenru and Jumbo Saruta. I'm not going to cover those matches in depth, at least not on this episode. Um, we'll get one uh, just a, a few months later in 1989, October of 1989, and then we'll get another one on April 19th, 1990. Um, they're great matches, but they're nowhere near as notable, obviously, as this match. It's worth noting that at this particular point, the intention of Tenru's win here was to solidify him as the new ace of the company and top babyface. That wasn't going to happen. 
Uh, Genichiro Tenru was in some ways similar to Antonio Inoki, kind of, you know, an iconoclast. He wanted to do things his way. He wanted to do things on his own terms. And he would be getting an opportunity very shortly to basically start his own promotion, the SWS, and he would leave All Japan Pro Wrestling. And that's when the search, although it didn't have to last long, for the new ace of the company, the new challenger to Jumbo Saruta's throne, uh, would take place. And there was one man that I think Baba already knew was going to fill those shoes. That's where we're going to leave it for this episode. And I am so excited to continue this journey. And I cannot wait uh, for your feedback, your comments, your criticisms. Um, you know, let me have it if you think I've messed something up. I want to learn. I want to learn too. And uh, the only way I'm going to do that is is by, you know, good, honest feedback. Um, I know there's a lot of fans of this particular period and a lot of people who know um, a lot about it. So I'm eager to continue that dialogue um, obviously you can hit me up at KOPW72 on Twitter, uh, and continue the conversation. Subscribe, uh, like, leave a review. Um, these episodes will be coming, um, with some frequency. I can't promise that I'll be dropping them every week, um, but certainly will be dropping them, um, often enough. Now it's worth noting that, uh, I intend on covering at least two matches uh, on the next episode. It'll be a shorter episode. I intend on keeping them somewhat shorter uh, here on out. Um, So if you want to watch those matches ahead of time to prepare for the dialogue, um, please do. Uh, We'll be talking about another very famous match on May 14th, 1990, a match uh, between the teams of Tiger Mask 2 and Kawada taking on Fuyuki and Yatsu. Uh, That match is one of the most important matches in professional wrestling history, and I stand by that comment. We will also be looking into a six-man tag match from May 26th, 1990, between Jumbo Saruta, the Great Kabuki, Fuchi taking on Misawa, Kobashi, and Taue. Uh, so I look forward to talking about those two matches as well as covering the uh, the two Jumbo, Saruta, and Genichiro Tinru matches that I mentioned um, that will take place after the June 5th match. Um, so join me next time as we continue our journey down the King's Road, uh, an All Japan Pro Wrestling 90s retrospective segment on the King of Pro Wrestling podcast. My name is Sam Fain. It has been a pleasure And I am so excited to begin this journey, and I look forward uh, to talking with you and, again, learning from you and learning with you as we go on. Um, Stay tuned. The King of Pro Wrestling podcast will have more content in addition to the All Japan Pro Wrestling retrospective. Uh, I will have more Filsinger Games content very soon. They've got some new releases coming out next week. Um, we'll also be talking with uh, some more wrestling-related talent, uh, including finally getting around to getting Memphis wrestling uh, historian and overall uh, territory historian Mark James uh, for an interview. I've been enjoying some of his books recently. And, of course, we'll be talking about some of the other goings-on in the world of professional wrestling. I know it's crazy out there right now. I know there's been a lot of hard news, a lot of sad news, both in the professional wrestling community and outside of the professional wrestling community. Um, I don't want to go into it too much. I think anyone who knows me has listened to this podcast or followed my Twitter knows where I stand on a lot of those issues. Um, And I am am, am certainly hoping that uh, 
we get some light and we get some love and we get some compassion and we get some empathy. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to try and spread a little joy and share something that I'm enthusiastic about with folks who I hope are also enthusiastic about it. So take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and I hope to be talking to you again very soon. Mm-hmm.